Issue 57 of the Roll for Initiative podcast. I am one of your hosts, DM Vince, along with DM Jason. Hello. And DM Nick. Hey there. We are back. Uh, we're about, uh, time of this recording, we're about two weeks away from the Big Bang of Gen Con. Woohoo. Woohoo. So uh, Jason and I will be there, and we'll probably look to meet people up maybe on Friday. Uh, yeah, I haven't even looked at my schedule yet, so I have to see when we're going to be able to do that. Yes, Oops. I know there is a Dead Game Society meetup on Wednesday called Old School Wednesday they're doing. Mm-hmm. So as soon as, I think it's after 5 until about 10 at night or something, and then they were going to go to the bar or something like that afterwards, hang out, people can meet each other and greet and stuff like that. I think that's what they planned on doing. That's cool. So maybe we'll just go to that instead. You guys okay. are lucky. <laughs> and next year, DM Nick will be with us. I think so. I might be going to Gen Con next year. We'll Good. just have to see. So, uh, what you been up to, Jason? Uh, mostly getting ready to, to go to Gen Con. I'm actually leaving uh, Thursday morning because I've got some stuff to do before I get to Gen Con. So, um, I'm going to be taking a train down to North Carolina, meeting some friends. We're driving to Iowa. Then we're going to get on bicycles and ride back to the other side of Iowa. And then I'm going to Chicago, and then from there I have to figure out how to get to Indianapolis to get to Gen Con. I thought you were taking so, the train. The train's just the first part to North Carolina. It's a big, long oh. route. I was originally going to take a train from here to uh, Indianapolis, yeah. but then all these other things came up in front of it, so now I'm making a big loop around and hitting Indianapolis from the other side. So you're leaving, let's see... Thursday. July 28th? Yeah. Oh, I see now. Okay. Because part of it, a week of it, is going to be on a bicycle, so. Wow. Yeah, well, that's an okay. actual thing, right? It's rag You're going to bicycle across Iowa, huh? Yeah, I got a week. You know, I can You make. will die of boredom crossing Iowa now. Congratulations. <laughs> but if anybody um, knows a good way to get from Chicago to Indianapolis, let me know, because it looks like the trains are really slow, and it seems silly to take an airplane to go, like, an inch on the map. So if anybody's, you know, aware of good ways to get there, let me know. Why don't you hook up from the, the people from Dead Game Society? Aren't they driving in? That's a good idea. They're from Chicago. Actually. They're actually in Chicago. Yeah, yeah they're from Chicago. We didn't see if you can Yeah, yes, we'll do. Winning. Yeah, yeah, duh, winning. Isn't there a large uh, group there called Chicago Base Gamers or something too? They're probably oh, going I'm to sure. Gen- they're probably going to Gen Con. Yeah. Oh, you know what? Friday night, Car Wars Rogue Arena. I'm ticketed for that. It's running till 9 o'clock. We could do something afterwards, maybe. Uh, well, I'm free know. pretty much at 5.30 onward, so. Yeah, Car Wars. I am super excited to play Car Wars. So. <laughs> and Thursday night, Star Frontiers. Oh, hey. Yeah. Sweet. That's going to be pretty cool. I'm actually going to be on Thursday night. I think I'm going to be at uh, your booth, Nick, your Kenzerco booth. Ah, oh, okay. I'll be checking out some of the demos of the Hackmaster Basic. Cool. Hey, check out Aces and Eights, too. It's a cool Western RPG, too. I like, I like Westerns. I might, I might yeah, check it's, that out. If anything, you see the book, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful book. Cool. 
But enough about that. Let's talk more some more D and D here. Or, you know, okay, this is what we're all about. Right, A D and D. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Same thing. Let's head into Sage Advice. Ooh. <laughs> Sage Advice. So we're in Sage Advice. Uh, let's start off with our voicemail tonight. Greetings, RFI gurus. This is DM Kojo. I have two questions for you. I haven't played AD&D in over 20 years, and I'm trying to get back into it now. Your podcast has been an awesome resource, for sure. I cut my teeth in the mentor box sets, then I moved on to AD&D. I'm trying to get a local group together to play again, but most of them have only played once or twice back in the day, if you know what I mean. So they're basically new to the game. When starting out players who are rookies, do you recommend starting them out at first level, or would you start them out a bit higher to keep it more entertaining for them? Also, do you have any suggested modules that I could run them through? I personally always fond of the U-series modules that Nick reviewed, but don't know if these would be good for new players. Also, my other question has to do with converting modules from classic D&D to the AD&D format. I have a lot of modules for both games, and some of my favorite ones are from the classic games, such as Keep on the Borderlands, Isle of Dread, Save a River, Quest for the Hearthstone. So I was wondering if you had any tips on how to convert those modules so I could use them in my first edition AD&D game. Keep up the great work. And uh, for the record, I have to agree with GM, DM Nick, uh, clerics of War Gods should definitely be allowed to use bladed weapons, but I would per- certainly impose other penalties in areas to compensate and balance the character, such as limiting some types of spells or some other limitations like that. Keep up the good work. DM Kojo signing off. Thanks. Wait a minute. Ha <laughs> Vindication! No, wait, yes! Wait a minute. DM Nick is Blackstone? No, 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 no. That's some other guy. I, I heard that, Jason, didn't you? Sounded like it to me. Yeah. No, Nick, have you been lying to us? On the cleric thing. Ha <laughs> uh, ha! Have you been lying to us, Nick? Maybe a little. <gasps> so, first oh, part like, of... Like anybody didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, I guess first part of his question we should address. Uh, starting characters at what level for beginners or basic people? Well, my vote... Was... Yeah, Jason. First level. I... I would start them at like third or fourth. Why that? I mean, for the for the first time that they have ever played, because I mean, with AD and D, you know, it's it's tough at first level to a to survive if you're not an experienced player. I mean, that's part of kind of the legend of the game is how easy it is to get a TPK on a first party, uh, first level party. And the other one is these guys sounded like to me to, like he said they had never played AD and D before. Maybe they don't. Maybe they haven't played tabletop role-playing games? I wasn't sure about that. I think you said but, that they haven't played in a long time or played once. Yeah, so, I mean, let them have some fun. You know, let them, let them have access to a few powerful things and kind of whet their appetite so they can, you know, keep going, I think. I would have to disagree with our co-host here. <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> okay. I would say start them off at first level. I say have a uh, session zero or session one have a session to where you're creating the characters. See what they would like to make. Mm-hmm. I think if you start them off at third or fourth level, I think you're robbing them all the whole experience of like starting with that first level character and working his way up, you know, working tooth and claw, trying to get at those levels. 
I think. Well, I mean, if you're going to do a campaign, sure. But these guys, who knows if they're like committed to play a whole lot of times or not? They're basically saying, "Hey, guys, let's get together and play some Dungeons and Dragons," and it might just be like a one-off session. So, I'd say. It's fun to make the characters. It's fun to go through all those things in the campaign. And if they turn out to really have a great time, maybe he should say, guys, why don't we do this as a campaign and let's you know, make some new characters and start from scratch. But for just one time, you know, let them cast a couple spells. Let them have a magic sword that's plus one at least. You know, let them do let them a couple of things. Yeah, I have to agree with Nick on the part of making them start first level. You're going to rob them of the experience, but... I would say if it was their first time playing, I would probably ignore a lot of a lot of things like a lot of hit points, a lot of hits. I'd fudge rolls just so they yeah. can have fun. Yeah, I would give them like each character maybe a magic item or two to start off with. Something you know not too powerful, you know, like a dagger plus one or a shield plus one or something like that. But um, and as far as adventures, um, wow, okay. You know, well, I mean, the Saltmarsh yeah, series first... is the Saltmarsh series is good, but that's like a series. If you're talking like first through third level, um, one that leaps to mind is Against the Cult of the Reptile God. I think that's a great first or third level is that, that's uh, a, is that, module. That's an S series, isn't it? Uh, N series. Oh, N1. that's right. Yeah, part of the Novice series. It's written by I think uh, Douglas Niles. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, it's. I have a actually pretty fond memory of that module. It's really good. Um, and converting them, geez, it's like I think the really the hardest things you might run into would be what maybe alignment if you no. have to do some alignment changes the, on something. Um, okay, I'll step in here, being the aficionado on the classic. Yeah, you might have some better idea on conversion stuff. <laughs> Save or die podcast, by the way. Uh, anyway. Shameless plug. <laughs> yeah, shameless plug. <laughs> no, the armor class is different and basic. They start at oh, nine. Yeah, they start at nine as opposed to ten. And a lot of the hit points are uh, hit dice are a lot different. So you may want to beef up the monsters just a little bit and consider the hit dice just it's just off by one, that's all. Right. And also you have races class and as class in the basic D D. Yeah. Most of that you can get around. I mean Yeah. Other than that, I mean, there's nothing really different, except there's a lot of treasure in the basic edition. Unless, or you have that, what's that one monster? The Fowl? It's a yeah. combination of ghoul, oh, troll, and... The Thule, the Thule. Thule, or Thou, where the heck yeah. it's called. Yeah, the combination, that was actually a misprint that they had to actually put back in, yeah. <laughs> we found out that was a misprint. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I would do that. I mean, just cut back on the gold, beef up the monsters a little, and just... Be aware the armor class is a little bit different. Yeah. And as far as... The one thing I might say about the adventure, though... Yeah. I mean, I totally agree with you that Salt Marsh is a great place to start. I think the... the uh, uh, If you're going to do a campaign. Well, it's, it's, it's okay. I mean, I, I've done just the first one as a standalone. There's enough of a payoff at the end yeah. of just the first adventure. But oh, yeah. I think that if he's running his friends through something, maybe they're all a little bit rusty. It might be easier actually, for him to write his own adventure. Might, yeah. There's a lot of good stuff out there online, too, that might be just, you know... Oh, yeah. Good for one night's uh, gaming, you know? Yeah. I just... I found that it actually takes more preparation and work to learn, to read somebody else's adventure and to, to, to really learn it well than it does to make your own. True. It can be that way, yeah. 
Yeah, especially especially if you get to the point where, you know, you have to be making some decisions on the fly, and you know, they, the players go somewhere that's not on the map. If you've created the adventure, it's a little bit easier to make up, you know, what's beyond the border, as opposed yeah. to when you're reading something somebody else's, you feel kind of stuck. And if the players see the DM kind of casting around for ideas and wondering, you know, it's, it slows it down a bit. Yeah, just make like a simple, I don't know, 10-room dungeon. Yeah, stock yeah, it. don't even, yeah, just stock it. Don't even give it a whole lot of backstory or whatever. Just let them yeah. do a dungeon crawl. Yeah, do a quick little dungeon crawl. See what happens. You never know. Uh, yeah, actually what you do, you even better, pick up one of the old school uh, uh, BX books or uh, the Holmes edition book, and they actually have a whole maze in the back of a quick crawl you can use. Nice. Yeah, there's there's a map in the player's hand or the DM's guide too. Mm-hmm. Oh, or the dungeon decks you could use from uh, yeah. those guys that, um, from Jim and Debbie. Gamers rules. Yeah, gamers. Gamers rules. They have deck. dungeon decks. Dungeon deck would be perfect for a situation like this. Yeah. Okay. I have another email here. It's from uh, Chris. I recently stumbled upon your podcast and have really enjoyed listening through all the back episodes. I started playing AD&D back in the early 80s, left the game for a long while, and after a brief encounter with 4E, ugh, have rediscovered my old school roots. Yay. Hooray. <laughs> yeah. He came to his senses, apparently. I was hoping <laughs> you might find some time in an upcoming episode to discuss the mechanics of non-lethal and weaponless combat according to the DMG rules, and maybe even walk your audience through a few Melee rounds of pummeling, grappling, and overbearing. Thank you very much. Best regards, Chris. P.S. Hello to Vincent from a fellow Long Islander. Hi. <laughs> so, uh, well, Jason, okay. you're our book. I'm, I'm often accused of being overbearing, so. Uh, you're our <laughs> uh, book guy, Jason. You want to walk us through some quick uh, thing? So, um, we we will not do a, a, a actual combat, but you can listen to one. We did one. Way back, uh, a couple of years ago, we did one. I think it was episode four. We tried to look it up before the show, uh, but our show notes could use some improvement. So I will find out which one it was, and we'll put it up in these show notes. But I'll just do a quick kind of uh, recap on these without running through them in too much detail. Because I think the most difficult thing about the non-weapon, or the non-lethal and weaponless combat, when you look at the DMG, it's actually not the rules that are difficult it's the way they're written it's the way they're presented because like most of the things in here there's sort of a combination of narrative and charts and uh the most difficult thing is that it doesn't really give you an overview to begin with of saying well this is kind of the the model you should have in your head for how it goes so i'll try to do that now um so there are three different things there's pummeling grappling and overbearing and they are Gygaxian turns of phrase for basically punching, wrestling, and knocking people down. So pummeling is just that, you know, it's, it's punching people out. Grappling is all the wrestling and getting the moves in. And overbearing is rushing at your opponent and just trying to knock them to the ground. Rah! And, rah. Um, in all of these, <laughs> one of the really uh, core issues to keep in mind is it talks about damage. But the damage that's in here is not uh, real, so to speak. The, uh, the way the hit points are set up in D&D is normally so that your 
damage is some damage you actually take and it takes you know the, the normal amount of time to heal i think one hit point per day without magical means um but this damage is temporary and it's 75 percent of the damage you take is uh, what they call incidental and you actually heal from that at one hit po- one hit point per round so you heal pretty quickly from it only 25 percent of the damage you take is actual long lasting hit point damage that you have to heal normally. So that's the first thing to keep in mind. Um, the other thing to keep in mind is that in these, it's meant to be kind of a quick action, and what's happening is you have an attacker and a defender, and the um, what, what do you call it? The uh, adjustments that get made have a lot to do with the speed of the attacker and the defender, the size of them, and things like how much armor they're wearing. So it, when you see the pummeling, the more armor that uh, the defender has on, the harder it is to really land a good blow, which makes sense. But when it comes to something like grappling, it's the opposite. The more armor that the attacker has on, the harder it is for them to get a good grip. So an attacker wearing plate mail is going to have a much harder time wrestling somebody to the ground than an attacker who's totally just wearing, you know, a gherkin and a pair of trousers, right? Um, when you go through okay. it, there's a there's a whole lot of um, adjustments for things like you know, dexterity and armor class and all of that. It's much easier if you have those determined ahead of time. That's why in the character sheets and the goldenrod character sheets that you get from uh, you know the official ones. There's actually the um, pummeling, grappling, and overbearing adjustments. So you figure them out ahead of time. It takes a few minutes. Once you've got the numbers in, it becomes a very quick thing where the DM is just saying, you know, give me your numbers. And it's just very straightforward. You roll once to see if you hit. You put your adjustments in. And then if you hit, which means either you grab them or you punch them or whatever, then you go to what the result was. And the result's going to be fun stuff. Like in the pummeling, it's things like a glancing blow versus a solid punch versus a crushing blow. And you can stun your opponent and you can knock them off balance. In the grappling, you have, uh, if you're successful, you have a whole bunch of different holds that you can do, like a waist clinch, a bear hug, a strangle hold. And then, of course, your opponent can try to break the holds. So it's a lot of percentile rolling. And if you've got your numbers down ahead of time, it's actually very fast. And when it's all over, one opponent has either been knocked unconscious or um, overborne to the point that they've you know, been grabbed. And now uh, you can do what you'd like, which is either to you know, hold them in place or you know, stab them or let them go or whatever. Um, but that's the basics. Yes. You've got three different types of attacks. You adjust it based on things like size and armor, etc. Keep those numbers around ahead of time. And when it comes time to do the rolling, it's a very straightforward, did you hit? And then if so, what kind of a hold did you get them in or what kind of a punch did you land? Right. So if the rest of the party hasn't fallen asleep by now from this whole combat experience. <laughs> but thank you, Jason. All right. Uh, last thing I wanted to uh, just address is here. Uh, we had a, a spring up in the forums here under issue 55. So I'll the episode called Take That Crispy, that yeah. Crispy was on with uh, me and myself and uh, DM Nick. And it, it spurred a comment in here, and uh, Jason, I wanted you to actually uh, step in here and uh, make a final neutral call. Neutral party? Yeah, you're a neutral party. You know the book really well, and you're a by-the-book person. 
and we've always counted on you to, uh, you know, be the referee here. So, okay. So basically, one of the, I won't say who you, they'll figure it out themselves, or they'll go look in the forums. Says that the order of combat initiative in combat is rolled before you declare actions. And before you say anything, Jason, he quotes on page sixty-one of the DM guide that when doing combat, determine if the party's surprised, if any at all. Two, and this is reading out of the book, determine the distance if known, blah, blah. Three, if both parties aren't surprised or equally surprised, determine initiative for that round. Four, determine the results of whatever actions are decided upon the party within the initiative. So on and so forth. Everybody knows that. So he is saying that you would roll initiative and then declare your actions, which I don't believe is right. And because Gary says later on in the book, I believe it's page 71. Mm-hmm. That you would declare your actions and then roll initiative and then determine the results, but I wanted you to clear that up. Okay, well, um, I, I wouldn't call myself necessarily like you know the encyclopedia of the rules or anything like that, but I try to read it you know as closely as I can. And the one thing I, I try to do is to use some logic and understand what the intent was. If the rules sometimes are you know a little unclear, so I read through these. And, uh, spoiler alert, you do announce your intentions before you roll the initiative. I'll explain why that makes sense, and then I'll kind of show you why it actually makes sense when you read it as well. (laughs) Um, And it's funny, because I'm looking at a little flowchart that I made for myself back in high school, (laughs) showing how the combat goes. And I've got players announce actions, then roll initiative. Um, But first of all, why that makes sense, because... The way that the combat system is set up in AD&D, everything's happening all at once. You're not taking – it's not, I swing my sword. Now, what will you do as I swing my sword? It's not my turn, your turn, my turn, your turn. That's something yeah, that got introduced. it's all happening at once pretty much. And exactly. Yeah. This is it's, – it's exactly right. This isn't a board game. This isn't later so, editions. Sorry? I said this isn't later editions as well. Yeah, I know. That's that's always drives me nuts. And actually, with the group that I sometimes do play for you with, uh, we've switched it around because it turns out to be more fun that way. Um, but basically, the point is that everybody says, all right, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. You you go in with saying what it is you want to do. Now, that goes really quickly. Everybody says their things. DM writes it down. And then he resolves the action, or she resolves the action. In other words, says, okay, if you were going to shoot an arrow and you were going to cast a spell, you were going to run off to the side. Let's see within the frame of a combat round when those things actually happened. And if you didn't do that ahead of time, then somebody could say, well, I don't know if I'm going to cast a spell or not, because I'm going to wait and see if that monster is going to attack me before I try to cast a spell, because I don't want to get it you know, interrupted. But what's actually happening, because it's all happening at once, you've got to say that beforehand. So that's the logic behind why it makes more sense. But if you read the actual text of the book, determine the dis- determine surprise. Okay, got that. Number two, determine the distance. Got that. Number mm-hmm. three, if they're you know both unsurprised or whatever, determine initiative. And then this is, I think, where whoever was posting got a little confused because the exact wording is determine the results of whatever actions are decided upon by the party with initiative. It's not determine. It's not state your actions. It's determine the results the of. Results. In other words, resolve the situation. So what this leaves out a little bit is 
there's no number here for everybody says what they're going to do. That happens before any of these things occur. And that's why later on uh, it actually says, I think you said on page 71 or whatever, uh, that the result that the um, intentions are announced beforehand. So there's no contradiction. It's just that on this page that isn't listed in the numbers of the things that happen because it's assumed that you already know you're supposed to say what you're going to do. I think I just also had a moment of clarity here. Okay. Okay. I, and I, and it was something that Jason said it to help resolve the situation, resolve combat, whatever, whatever it may be. Like, like we said, like you said, this is all happening at once. You know, combat's going on, people casting spells, chugging potions, monsters running into the fray, whatever. The initiative is just a way of giving a little bit of order to the chaos and trying to resolve these actions while it's all happening. Right. Trying to give some order to it all. I'm like, that's freaking brilliant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you need to know um, I mean, it's really important when you get to the example I just gave of casting a spell. If somebody's shooting an arrow at the magic user who's trying to cast a spell, you have to know whether or not they managed to get finished saying their spell before the arrow hit them. That's why there's a segment casting time for the spell, and that's why you have segments of action in a round so that you can tell how long it takes the arrow to get there. Exactly. And it's an exciting moment. Cool. All right, well, we resolved that. Enough said. All right. We won the argument. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, no, I think we hopefully just cleared it up a bit. Yeah, resolved the chaotic situation. Wow. Nice. Yeah, nice job. All right, uh, sage advice. Uh, you can email us, rfistaff at gmail.com, or you can leave us a voicemail, 570-825-4210, the hotline. 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 Where Nick is standing by. You got it, hot. You know, I think people actually call the hotline to see if Nick or somebody is standing by. Oh, God. Well, then you better stand by. Because I noticed, like, missed calls of, like, a second voicemail or something. So I wonder if people, like, <laughs> checking to see if somebody answers the phone or something. So people... Yes, wait, no, we wait by that phone <laughs> with bated breath. Be assured nobody answers the phone. It goes directly to voicemail after a couple rings. So I'll don't worry about Tucker's cobalts on it. And maybe they'll answer yeah. the phone next time. You, you, don't worry, you won't get a hello. This is Jason or something like that. <laughs> Just in case you don't want to talk to us directly, don't worry about it. Well, let's head into table manners. Typical of all the evil creatures in the world, we like to find one with table manners. And what are you kidding me? I've spent years cultivating the worst table manners on the planet. Table manners. In table manners today, we're going to talk about alignment languages. <laughs> so uh, this is this is one of the more controversial rules in AD and D, wouldn't you guys say? You speak evil. Yes. <laughs> um. To, okay. So to go by the book, alignment languages are secret bits of phrases and words and maybe even hand gestures that gestures, are only yeah. known to some creature of a certain alignment. So according to the book, all lawful good intelligent creatures, well, I guess you'd have to be intelligent of some sort to be lawful good, but anyway, <laughs> um, all lawful good creatures speak the lawful good alignment. 
And even more controversial, if you change alignment, you can no longer speak that language. You just forget <laughs> it. And, you, and then you learn the new one. So uh, how does that all work, and does it make any sense? No. And I was reading through the book, and the PHE was at page 24. 24 and yeah. the DMG. Yeah, and DMG. The alignment tongue, or the alignment language, mm -hmm. is only supposed to be used in, you're not supposed to use it out in the open. Yeah, you don't just go around talking in it. Right. It's sort of like I guess it's like a to, major social faux pas if you do. Yeah, I mean, it's like belonging to a secret society and then just spilling the beans, you know, right in the town square. Yeah, it's like being a Freemason and say, okay, this is all of our secrets. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, th this is one where definitely if you want to play with or without this rule, it has a lot to do with the nature of your campaign. Um, if you're If the flavor of your campaign is a very ultra realistic campaign and the only difference between history and your campaign is that magic works then you might have a hard time um justifying the idea that there are these alignment languages that people can just suddenly speak right i speak um, and, people yeah i yeah and it just i i think for a lot of people that, that that would really take away from the realism of it yeah um and also, it can just be kind of a confusing rule, you know, that doesn't have a lot of necessity to it. But if you are in a campaign and you're playing with the worldview that the alignments are very real things, you know, that you've got, if you read the manual of the planes, you know, you've got a different plane for every alignment. They are actual forces in the world, not just personality types and we've talked about this before you know the the issue of what is an alignment and how does it change right. um so so if you if you accept the worldview that being of let's say chaotic good alignment isn't just a matter of being a bit like you know jack kerouac or something it's not just a personality issue but it's actually being aligned with that plane of existence then mm -hmm. i think you could make sense of the idea that somehow these um, alignment languages are tied to something spiritual or magical or some other type of thing so that it becomes like a core of your being. And that when you change alignment, it's a really big deal. The gods have a problem with it. They take away your power to speak that. The other gods that are aligned with the new alignment are really happy about it and they give you the new power to speak that. Mm. I, it kind of makes sense in that sort of a worldview, I think. Mm. Um, and the alignment languages, they're not meant to be languages. You're not going to uh, write government documents in these. You won't, you won't conduct business in them. You can't write poetry. They're more – they're often compared to the thieves' cant in the book. Yeah, it sounds like, Dragon more like symbols and, and gestures and things of that nature. Like hobo, hobo graffiti from yeah. the <laughs> From the from riding the rails, you know all those hobo, hobo symbols. Yeah. Um, I've always thought of alignment languages as like I don't know, like a pig Latin, or um, you know how when twins and triplets have their own secret language, they always make up, but they know what they're saying. Something mm -hmm. like that. That's what I've always associated those languages like. So, like uh, the example they give of thieves' camp, I think that's kind of like what you're talking about. They yeah. had all of these words that 
in history. Okay, so historical example that's usually given in the books, and it's such almost a cliche at this point that if you look at Wikipedia, as I did, you know, before this, got to cheat somehow. Um, it says, you know, thieves can't is something that actually existed s- centuries ago, and basically the only reason people even remember it now is because of role-playing games. Oh. So, but you're, you're familiar with, like, Cockney rhyming slang? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, apples and pears and all that business, um, which, again, might only happen in movies now, as far as I know. But um, if anybody knows different, let us know. If anybody's listening in who's Cockney, is that still a thing? Call in and say a bunch of Cockney rhyming slang at us, would you? Is that like jive but, talk or something? Uh, that's another good one, yeah. I um, speak jive. Any, anytime you've got a uh, certain culture that identifies with itself... It's going to maybe develop some words and some phrases that only are understood within Leech that speak. culture. Oh. That's another one. Yes. But here, now you've got, this, you've got this culture of hackers or jive turkeys from the 70s or cockney rhyming, you know, moppets from the, from the Victorian era or whatever. Instead of just that, you now have an entire plane of alignment so that when a lawful good paladin, you know, runs into a lawful good planar from another um, alternate dimension, they can actually, even if they don't speak the same language, could at least exchange a few basic ways of communicating between themselves. Interesting. Sweet. Weird. <laughs> now, here's the question to all of this. Has anybody here used alignment languages in a campaign or been in a campaign where they have used alignment languages? Well, I actually was in a campaign myself that we uh, used it with uh, with Joe. He actually implemented it, and he actually yeah, the great, great DM Joe. It was cool because he like he made up like some his own sign language, and he used it for the show, uh, for the show. Sorry for the game, and then he uh, what do you use? He had these little cards that he made up little symbols on to symbolize different things. So, huh? Cards like what? Like he made up these like symbols on the cards, and he would use them for certain things, and we had to figure out what the words meant and everything. Oh, cool! Wow, that was kind of cool. Was he the was, alignment tongue. Yeah, it was. He used it for uh, mostly for uh, a neutral alignment when we were playing. So interesting. Yeah. Oh, that's I, actually isn't neutral supposed to be the one alignment that doesn't have an alignment language? Maybe. I thought this that was the, the only one Joe that did. DM. He could do whatever he wants. That's his yeah, game. He, yeah, he did it for neutral language, like lawful neutral and chaotic neutral. And, oh, okay, not, not, not true neutral. Though. Yeah, not true neutral. No one, we never actually played with true neutral. That was one rule that he always had in his games, and I continued it, that no one plays, no player character plays true neutral. Not even a druid? Uh, no, he would actually make the druid change their alignment. Oh. Yeah, because he, he, from his philosophy was that no true player character can actually play true neutral the proper way, so why make them hurt during the game? <laughs> so just let them play a normal character. If they really want to play a druid, then just pick an alignment that's within reason. I don't think I've ever played in a game or ever used in a campaign the alignment uh, languages at all. I, even back in my early days of playing, I don't... I don't think I ever recalled using it. I'm like, what does lawful neutral sound like? You know? Right. <laughs> does it sound like a bunch of legalese? Uh, uh, 
Well, no, I, 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 I have used it at times. I have used it at times when there's a need to communicate with a creature that just does. They're in, they're, they're in a different country. Common isn't spoken, something like that. You know, I've used it for that purpose. I've never used it as a way to, you know, sort of like a secret handshake kind of thing. Hmm. Uh, I suppose it could work as that, but you know, what if you get it wrong? Yeah. You know, I, I guess. And that's, that's how that's, it kind of alludes to in the book. It's kind of used in that way. Like you said, it's kind of like a secret language, but you know, the thing is, so we've, you've got a, a spell detect alignment, right? Or no alignment. I think yeah. it's called, um, doesn't it kind of make that spell pointless if all you have to do is try speaking a few words of lawful neutral to find out if they understand you? Yeah, but what if they don't want to acknowledge the fact? Right. Yeah, but they can't fake it either. I mean, so let's say somebody's claiming okay, uh, spoiler here, if anybody's planning to play Salt Marsh, close your ears for a few seconds. I'm no, I won't say anything too explicit about what happens, but anyway. Let's say that you meet somebody who's claiming to be a thief, but they're really an assassin. Let's just say, right? Um, and they're they're a, let's say they're a lawful evil assassin, and they're claiming to be a you know a neutral thief. Mm-hmm. All or okay, neutral is a bad example. Let's say they're a lawful evil assassin. They're playing they're claiming to be a chaotic neutral thief. Okay. Well, if you've got somebody in the party who is chaotic neutral, all they have to do is say a couple of things that only a chaotic neutral would know, and then and the they don't know it because they can't know it because it's it's unknowable to somebody who's not lawful neutral. Yeah, but that that assassin is not going to be a dope and go, oh my god, you caught me, and start talking in the language. Ah, but those <laughs> but, assassins, why aren't they high enough level? Aren't they able to learn other alignment tongues? Oh, are they? No, I don't think so. Yes. Okay, well, that's a good one for assassins. Assassins with an intelligence of 15 or more are able to learn an alignment tongue. Okay. But, well, let's take a different example. It's just whatever it is. Let's say you're talking to somebody that's claiming to be good and they're actually evil. And they're just not going – if you use the test of – um, saying a couple of things that only a good character would understand, you know, they would. It's probably why. I mean, there is a sentence in here that says in the book they are not used as salutations or interrogatives if the speaker is uncertain of the alignment of those addressed. Right. But still, I mean, if you if you're claiming to be chaotic good and you're hanging out with the party, why wouldn't you just use that as a test? Hmm. I guess you could. I don't know. I'd love to hear anybody's thoughts on it because to me that kind of runs. It's it's not a contradiction, but it's a little bit of a confusion. Why would you bother having this spell? Is there an actual? There is a. Uh, sorry, guys. There's a parrot that just landed on the fence outside, out back of here. <laughs> Maybe he speaks an alignment tongue. Yeah, let me try. That is crazy. He's gone now. An actual green parrot just flew. What? Oh, oh well. Um, wow. <laughs> it's New York City. We don't get anything other than pigeons and rats. That was amazing. Which are basically flying rats anyway. But same thing. Yeah. I always thought What's maybe their alignment tongue. Rat. Evil. <laughs> evil. An- evil. No annoyance. That's their alignment tongue. <laughs> Huge and scary. 
Um, so yeah, I don't know if anybody has any idea about why you would bother having the no alignment spell when you could just use a few tricks. Well, I don't know. Well, the only way you'd use that is if you don't use alignment languages. Yeah, but still, I mean, you walk up to a person that you're unsure about in your party and you, I don't know, throw whatever, chaotic neutral at them. They still Mm -hmm. can look at you and pretend like they don't know what you're talking about. Wouldn't you yeah, say Yeah, but that? what I'm saying is if they're claiming to be chaotic good, you're chaotic good, you say something in chaotic good, they better if and they don't understand it, then you know at least they're not that. Yeah, true, but you so, can they can always go this the route of how dare you use that tongue in public. Yeah. Yeah. Go that route. But but you're, you're, I, I guess you could still need the spell. I mean, yeah, you're not you supposed to just go around using it as a way of interrogating people. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> now it's interrogating. <laughs> well, it says an interrogative, so, you know. Yeah, close enough. Close enough. Well, anyways, it's a little bit of a goofy rule. I hate to say anything like, oh, I don't like the way the game's set up, because why am I playing if I don't like the way it's set up? But this yeah. one's a, this one throws me off a little bit. I don't think I've ever quite come to grips with the idea of alignment as being some uh, elemental feature of reality. The way that it's presented here, right? Okay, I just I've just never used them or played with them. Well, yeah, they're pretty much just there. I mean, so anyways, those are alignment languages, and uh, there are some cool things you can do if you're interested in playing with them. Uh, it can be fun to do some of the things like the great Joe DM did with the cards. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. There's even, uh, in, in one of the Dragon magazines, there was a whole special on languages. Oh, that's um, right. Yeah, I forgot which. It was like 71 or something. Uh, but no. they also have a nice handy guide to Thieves' Cant in that dragon. So if you want to use some of those words to introduce a little bit of uh, pseudo-reality to the situation, that can be fun, too. Cool. I, I forgot to tell you guys. I actually figured out, found not figured out, found out where the great Joe DM lives. Did you? Did. Yes, he does. He's still on Long. He? he is still in Long Island, and he is still in the same place he always lived. <laughs> you didn't think to look there? No, I didn't think that. I've been uh, trying to get his phone number from one of my friends back from uh, Long Island to give him uh, a call so I could, you know, at least tell him about the podcast if he isn't already listening, which I hope he is, Joe. Yeah. Wait a minute! Didn't we say we just had a? Letter from a fellow Long Islander? His name was Chris. Oh, okay. He yeah. claims his name is Chris. He didn't say it in Chaotic Good. <laughs> Good point. No, he's actually Chris from, I think he said he's from, uh, I think he said Ronkonkoma area, which you guys wouldn't know what that is, but, you know. No. Anyway, I think we were heading into game mechanics, right? Yeah, yep. let's, let's go over there and see what we have in the room. You think I'm mad? Perhaps I am. What are you, a wizard, a genius? Darn. A perfectly good brain wasted. Game mechanics. All right, let's look around here in the game mechanics room. And it looks like today we're going to be talking about death. I am death. So. How do we all die? The seven moose. (laughs) Seven moose. I don't know what that means. The old 96er. <laughs> you ever seen Monty Python's Meaning of Life? Oh, yeah. yeah wow. What about a moose? Salmon moose. 
Never mind. I don't know. (laughs) On topic. On topic. Sorry. Shiny thing. Sorry. (laughs) Squirrel. Nick, Um, Nick, here's a ball. How about fun? (laughs) Zero hit point death versus minus 10 hit point death. Um, You know, this is another one of those things that really should have just been stuck right up in the front of the book in huge letters (laughs) because there's not, I mean, it's not like. When does your character die is some obscure concept, right, that might never come up. Oh, some people think it is. <laughs> well, they're probably playing fourth edition. Um, oh, well, oh, <laughs> zing, direct attack. I shouldn't Ooh, do that. Bazinga. Um, yeah, I mean, so we talked before about should first level char- should novices play first level characters. Well, if they do, this rule is probably going to come up. You know, you get hit twice by a... Uh, Fire ant, and you're down to zero hit points, or less. So, or less. So, so what happens? You're not um, quite dead. Not, I'm feeling getting better. Um, so, so the rule is uh, zero hit points is not dead, but you can't keep fighting either. Negative ten hit points. That's dead. Um, right. What zero hit points mean is you're unconscious. You've been, and now you're starting to bleed out. Whether it means internal bleeding, external bleeding, you know, so whatever the cause is, once you hit zero hit points, you're now on the road to death. And and for all of our listeners out there, that's on page eighty-two. Yes, master's guide. Eighty-two. So um, if you are brought down to zero hit points, you're then unconscious, and then for every succeeding round, you lose another hit point until you get to. Minus 10, that's death. And it's caused, says here from you, know, bleeding, shock, convulsions, you know, non-respiration, etc. People um, poking it with a stick. <laughs> that could, any of those things. Um, but the good news is, you don't have to have a cleric to save them at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, any aid will um, stop them from bleeding out. Or from, you know, continuing towards death. So here, you know, the game, the game kind of overtakes reality a little bit and assumes that all the characters know some of your basic CPR and bandaging wounds and things like that. And poking that you with a stick. Not <laughs> poking you with a stick. So continue to go to... Because if you... How to stop poking a dead man or a dying man with a stick? I took a class in that. They said, stop. Yes, there you go. <laughs> um, they took the stick away and broke it. But then what they need to... So all they can do at that point is to stabilize them. So if you've come down to, say, you know, negative three hit points, you're unconscious, and your party members stabilize you by administering first aid of whatever type, now you stay at negative three. You're not going to continue towards death, but you're not going to heal up either. You're not going to come back up to zero and wake up and everything's going to be better. The first thing is you have to be brought back to zero hit points. You're going to either need a cleric or you're going to need the bed rest and the time you know, of normal healing, which is one hit point per day. So let's say you're negative three hit points. There's no cleric around. It's going to take three days of bed rest to get back up to zero. Of lugging his butt around. Yes. So um, what, what do you have to play? Throw him in the bag of holding. Yeah. No, uh, they might die in there. Oh, wait, they're already well, dead. <laughs> uh, I, I'd let him have. I'd let him. I, I'd let him. Wouldn't you? Really? Sure. Bag of holding? Yeah. Bag of holding? Sure, why not? Hmm. 
I, I don't want to just kill. I mean, if they've gotten to the trouble of, you know, figuring that out and they've stabilized their character, characters are important. Don't, I don't want to just kill them. And what do you have them roll when you have them do first aid, Jason, in your game? I don't. You just I say mean, they're I, stabilizing. It's just stabilizing. Because the thing is, you're not bring, you do first aid, you're not bringing them back to zero. You're just keeping them from dying. If a cleric heals them up, they come up above zero. That's fine. But they're not going to get on their feet and start fighting again because the next part of the rule is any character brought to zero hit points and then revive or fewer and then revived will remain in a coma for one to six turns. So that's ten to sixty minutes. Yeah. Um, and thereafter, he or she must rest for a full week minimum. He'll be uh, he or she will be incapable of any activity other than that necessary to move slowly to a place of rest and eat and sleep when there. Cannot attack, defend. Ca- I mean, you're basically you're out. It's got to hurt to go down to zero hit points. Yeah, and that's well, what it think means. about it. You were brought back from death's door, essentially. You're, yeah. You're, you were, with all intents and purposes, you were in a coma, and you yeah. just came out of a coma. The last thing you want to do is probably go around jogging around with your sword in your hand and trying to whack at things. <laughs> I think you might want to just, you know, relax, recoup a little bit. So that makes exactly. sense. Um, now, of course, I'm not prepared as well as I should be, but isn't there a restoration spell that can overcome the need to? Yeah, seventh level clerics, restoration. Yeah, yeah restoration. <clears throat> yeah, so that, which will overcome the need to go through all of that. Um, you have a high enough cleric that could do that. <laughs> if you've got a cleric who's at seventh level, they should have probably kept you from getting down to zero hit points in the first it's place. In the first place. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> um, but, but the basics are zero hit points is just unconscious. Negative ten, that's dead. Well, you said you don't have them roll. You just have them stabilized. Now, what about in the middle of combat? Your guy, so Nick is in combat with me, you, and Nick are playing. And Nick's character goes down negative two, and we're still fighting. I'm holding him off, Jason. You got your guy's a thief. You decide to go stabilize him. You mm-hmm. just let him automatically stabilize him, or do you think the DM, looking from the DM point of view, you would say, okay, roll me a percentile, roll me a d6, roll me a d20? You don't think it's no, a chance that he can screw it up? No, I don't any, any, uh, failure, any failure chance for just stabilizing. But um, it is. It takes time to stabilize. I give them a round, um, and during that round, they're vulnerable. So you know, it it might not be very practical to try to stabilize somebody during combat. In which case, you better hurry up and finish the combat quickly before they die. I yeah, actually, but I don't do any rolls. Do you? What do you? Yeah, do? I I actually do a uh, d twenty roll, mm-hmm. and I only require maybe like one thing, and that's not roll a one. Okay. If you roll a one, then you automatically cause more harm to the player than helping him. That's <laughs> that's the only thing. Because I feel you're sitting there in combat, you're taking the bandages out or whatever you're using, you're pulling your straps out, you're cutting it, you're patching the guy up. What if you, you know, an arrow knocks you in the back or your buddy who's fighting bumps into you? You could screw up and jam the knife into the guy's back or something. <laughs> While you're trying to eat, while you're trying to stabilize. Now, as far as I recall, with this rule and how I played it back in the day, I think I did it like Jason. You, you, your your character declared, "I'm going to stabilize the character uh, such and such," and uh, so he, they won't drop any more hit points. You know, you're administering that first aid, whatever it is. So, right. And it probably take like a round to do. So. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit. I mean, look, it's a little bit unrealistic that any character can just, you know, you you've just had your player be mauled by a bugbear, and he's down to, you know, he's bleeding out and he's unconscious, and somebody's just going to go over and put a bandaid on him, and he's, you know, stabilized. <laughs> but it would it would get pretty complex to to go beyond that. I think you know what you're saying about rolling to see if they maybe fail. Well, you yeah. know, that might introduce a little something to it. It's just, you know, nothing that I had come up with. I, I just think for a stressful situation that someone might screw up that's not used to doing it or something. Yeah. Now, um, the other question that might come up is, uh, it's not a rule in here, but system shock rolls. Ah, uh, yes. Now, now, I mean, you're supposed to do them for resurrection, but that's yeah. resurrection. Right. Now, I... I don't think it's in D and um, I'm confusing it with another game system. I use yeah, system no, shock only when a character takes so much damage. Mm-hmm. So if he's reduced to say negative five, and that happens to be a twenty-five percent hit on his hit points, then he'd be doing a system shock. In That's my good. book. That's good. And a zero hit point death actually beckons back to basic D and D. Uh, back to the Mulvey and uh, Cook and uh, Menser. Looking mm-hmm. at, I'm looking at the rules right now in front of me. Uh, um, page 25 of the uh, Mulvey uh, book. Any defender reduced to zero hit points or less is dead. Yeah, so. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. I guess they just wanted to give him some kind of a chance here. Um, I think, and I think that's probably where might have some people got some confusion on which is the the correct rule. I think some people who started with the Molde edition or some older editions of D&D when they maybe went on to play AD&D first edition, they just carried over that zero hit points equals death rule with them. Uh, yeah, I, I, Joe did that actually because I remember right. specifically in one campaign uh, we were playing and my character found this. We, we came upon this tree it was a, a wiggling tree. I don't know why it was wiggling, but anyway. And it had a dagger <laughs> stuck in it. And what Joe's was like, stuck in it? a dagger. A dagger, okay. There was a dagger stuck in the tree, and the tree was wiggling back and forth. It looked like it was in pain. So uh-huh. Joe's like, what do you do? So I went up, I go, oh, I pull the dagger out, and uh, I, you know, patch up the hole for the tree. And he's just like, okay, great. He goes, and then, and then we were playing, and then when I reached zero hit points, I didn't die. So uh, after the game, I was like, Joe, so why didn't I die? He goes, oh, because the dagger brings you to negative 10 hit points, and then you would die. Uh, I was like, okay. oh, so okay. Yeah. So he's so one of the people, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, along with that is when some other people maybe went on the AD&D first edition or even started with that, and they read that rule, that's what they stuck with. So I think there was like some, there was some confusion, or there might have been some dispute between some people's like, well, zero hit points equals death. That's how we always did it. Blah blah blah. Yeah. Versus some people. Well, no, it's negative ten. It's right here in the book. And so, well, that's the part of the problem is that right here in the book is actually you know page eighty two in between a couple of other topics. Right. It's pretty right. easy to miss. Like I was saying, it's just all those people who started with Molve or Mets or rules or whatever, and they went on and they they just carried that over. And I and I think I kind of recall some of that. Some people saying, you know, zero hit points is death. That's it. And there are some other people who say, well, you know, it's negative ten. It's right here in the book. And so yeah. I don't know. I mean, 
it's easy to miss. You know, yeah. it's, it's oh yeah, it's on it's, yeah, yeah, like page said, it's buried between two. two other topics. Yeah, <laughs> but the uh, but it, 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 I think it adds a lot of fun to it having the opportunity to actually revive a character without. You know, I had a game recently where one of the players was knocked down to, I think it was like negative three actually. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a whole lot of stuff involved with trying to make sure that they could stabilize him before the end of the combat so that he didn't go down to negative 10. And then they had to figure out how to get him out of the dungeon, you know, so they could actually do something with him. And that became part of the adventure. Add a little bit of a twist to this. What I would do if I was, if I was running first edition again, I probably would have like a skill, called first aid there might be one in the wilderness or dungeoneer survival guide for all i know i'd have to check my books but i think there's a first aid skill that Mm -hmm. could be used to do the stabilize and maybe regain a couple of hit points here or there but uh, why why make it a special skill well i mean if you want to introduce uh you know you know proficiencies into the game i mean that might be a particular proficiency you mean non-weapon proficiencies yeah yeah, non-weapon proficiency. Oh, okay. So that might be a non-weapon proficiency a character might have. I, I don't know what this this non-weapon proficiency you're talking about is. I, I understand that. I've never so. heard. I've never heard of this phrase. Have you, Jason? I'm not clear on the topic. Yeah. Non what the what? Not yeah. I think that was second. Edition. Anyway, <laughs> moving on from that. One of the things I would probably introduce into the game, and this might sound a little bit cutthroat, hmm. is, but keep in mind this goes both ways, to the, to the player characters and to monsters and NPCs. If you suffer more than half of your hit points in one round, you have to make a system chakra or fall unconscious. Oh, yeah, I, I totally agree with that, too, yeah. What do you think of that, Jason? I, I can see why you would do it, and if I was playing in your game and you said that was the rule, I'd go along with it fine, but I, I don't do it in mine. Okay. I, I think there's plenty of ways to die and get killed as it is. Okay. You just don't want to add many more to the list, huh? It's it's hard <laughs> enough to survive through your average dungeon. I don't. I, I just don't want to make it any harder. Cool. Oh, why not? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, a fun thing that's in here, we didn't bring up, just a little side rule, if you are brought below uh, negative six hit points before you get revived, uh, then you could indicate. It says it could indicate scarring or the loss of some member. So Ooh. it could be a fun little thing to uh, give a character a scar or a missing finger or something or like foot. that, or maybe brain damage. Oh yeah, like I think missing trauma. foot and brain damage. You maybe don't have a playable character anymore unless it's a fighter. So, for the brain damage. I smash so, uh, you. <laughs> fighters are dumb. So, uh, yeah. There's that. Great. So, we'll throw it out to people out there. Let's see what yeah. they use. You can email us or, you know, call us. One of the two. And uh, let's end the creature feature. So for the creature this week, we have we're going to look at a very different book of creatures this week. We're going to head over to the Manual of Planes. Manual of the Planes. Oh, the Planes. 
one of the orange spine books that I have here that's falling apart because of the bad glue. Made mine's by in great condition. Yeah. Yeah, mine's like brand new. Yeah, mine is too. I have I'm looking at the older one I have. Oh, okay. The one that still has the Toys R Us sticker on it that I bought. <laughs> <laughs> it says nine ninety nine Toys R Us with that old orange sticker they used to have. Yes. Nice. Uh, made, uh, written by Mr. Jeff Grubb. We actually have an the Einherr. I'm gonna say how it's pronounced. Jason, I think that's close. Einherr. I don't know. It's some type of German monster. Let's just call it Spirit Legions, as it is in the appendix there. Yeah, Spirit Spirit Legions. Legions. Spirit Legions, that's good. I like this. This is kind of like when you go to the Outer Plains, and this is the Guardian that you would see when you first reach the plane. These guys are roaming around, protecting the plains. They're like the Valkyrie, in a way. Yeah, they're they're, they're uh, the glorious... Let's see... I hear it's probably the name of a glorious dead Asgard, which would pretty much be equivalent of... I considered Asgard's the opposite of tieflings, or for Jason, the opposite of uh, a devil or a demon, so an angel. Well, Asgard is actually a plane. Yeah, but I consider Asgardians as in, like, angel-like people, so... Oh, okay. But, um... Alright, my first question here is, is Asgard, that's just for the Norse mythos, right? Yeah, the uh, Valhalla, yeah, okay. Valhalla, I okay. Valhalla, things like that, yeah. So, I mean, that's that's why you're saying, Nick, like the Valkyries, right? Yeah. Yeah, in a way, yeah. but it, the description, go ahead and read on that, because it's just used like as a generality, I guess. Uh, where was I? But it uses a general name for any human spirits... Humanoid spirits that are employed, employed, or they have a job, in the outer planes as servants, warriors, patrols, or guards. Apparently so. They must punch in and punch out or something. I don't know. They are primarily used in the planes that are neutral to good alignment, and they are much less common in the lower planes. 10d10 can be a, a roaming party, and then you have to roll in a chart to determine what type of class they would represent and what level they would become. Based upon the class, then you would get through the alignment and what other weapons and stuff they would have on them. But using these in a campaign, you would rarely see them, but unless they travel to, say, some outer plane. And uh, I would use this creature as, like, the greeting creature. You come on the plane, this would be the first thing that comes up to you, like, as if it's on a good plane, state your business type creature. Mm-hmm. I could totally see one this of these is your things. your favorite color. No. <laughs> oh, sorry. Not that little jerk. <laughs> But I could totally see them doing that. How would you uh, use them yourself, Nick? Well, you know, 10d10. That's a lot of them that could show up. Um, well, like like you said, on the, their respectable planes that they are, they're the warrior legions or whatever of, of those particular gods. Um, I would say they're probably the ones that would greet you if you want to... Greeting in a very broad sense. <laughs> you know, greeting, greeting maybe with swords drawn and yeah. spells at the ready. Who knows? Yeah, state your purpose. <laughs> yeah, state your purpose and we will blow you away back to where whence you came. Um, <laughs> otherwise, I wonder if this these creatures could be sent by their gods to be, you know... To, uh, you know, the, check up on some of their worshippers, some of their clerics, to see what they're doing, you know, make sure that they're spreading the faith accordingly, stuff of that matter. I wonder if they could be using that well, sense on the prime material from a particular god. I don't think 
Hmm. How would they? Well, I mean, how would they get around? Well, how would they get around on the other planes? I, I would mean, think that they'd sort of be angels of Asgard. I mean, they 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 sound to me like your basic henchmen. You know, yeah. It's so the number ten d ten being a being a general patrol. It's in the sentence where it says that they, you know the, the number encountered varies according to the plane. Yeah, I. Yeah, I know that they say that they exist on different planes, but I don't have a problem with them also being sent on some sort of a uh, uh, task. You know, they're probably not by themselves. They'd probably be sent as a group. Yeah, because you could see in their description where it says frequency common and mm-hmm. in parentheses on planes where they exist. So who says maybe they're very rare on the prime material, you know? Yeah. I, I, I think fact, the I idea just, of a God was, sending them down, it makes a lot of sense. I, in fact, I was just going to say to that, maybe this would be something you could use, like, if you use the quote-unquote God call in yeah. your campaign, maybe this is a way of your God <laughs> responding to that God call. Divine it's intervention. Phone call. Divine you intervention, know? huh? Yeah. Yeah, this is, your, yeah. this is maybe a result of a divine intervention. You know, 10 of the spirit legion of, of the spirit legion show up and and help you out for X amount of rounds in the combat. I don't know. Maybe this is why you can use that. I heard somewhere, I don't know if I heard it or read it in our forums, someone had a chart for every game for divine intervention, and they would roll it, and they would tell you what the god would do as opposed to the combat. So you call divine intervention, the god doesn't answer you, or the god listens to you and gives you 1d4 hit points healed or something, or the god throws a streak of lightning down, but... You really weren't paying attention to him, so he decides to throw lightning at you instead, or something like that. <laughs> How dare you bug me while I'm eating? Yeah, Sot. he's doing his laundry, and you bothered him, so he threw lightning at you instead. I don't know. Gods someone are very fickle. Yeah, someone wrote that up, and I can't remember where I saw it, but just that just jogged my memory for that. That's it was kind cool. of yeah, kind of interesting. Yeah. <laughs> You can think of some ways, uh, uh, any other ways, Jason, you might want to use these in a campaign? Well, I don't know. You know, when I think of these guys, I don't, I mean, I know they they're, they're, they're guard, they can be guards, etc., patrols, and all that, but I really do think of them as henchmen, the way that yeah. they're described here. So, um, I, I don't know that I would necessarily always have them you know, greeting you and things like that. It may just be that they really don't care that much about you unless they've been specifically instructed to. And uh, the most likely effective an interaction is you're annoying them and they maybe they just send you away because you're bothering their drinking <laughs> yeah <laughs> or, or i just thought of a really good one a high intelligence one sent down as a false prophet to throw off the religion Ooh, he's, i like that one. yeah he's, he's sent down to cause chaos and mischief just to see if the faith is true have you guys uh seen this this british tv show called misfits Mm-mm. Well, there's a uh, there's a good episode with a false prophet in that one that I think would make a good um, sort of uh, model for the kind of adventure you're talking about. Yeah, that'd be a great that'd be a great one actually. Yeah, Misfits. It's kind of like that the the British version of Skins crossed with Doctor Who. Um, Interesting. Got a, okay. Yeah, you got a bunch of like you know juvenile delinquents, and they all end up with these kind of lousy superpowers. My God. Um, but but yeah, so it's a, it's a great show. It's only they've only had a couple of seasons, but it's really good. But there's a good one with a false prophet in there, and the way that they have to deal with him, I think, would make a good 
uh, starting point if you wanted to write your own adventure around that kind of thing. Word. Word. So that's the creature in a nutshell. Poor things in a nutshell. Why'd you do that? Well, you know, he needs to be captured once in a while. Tell us how you use it, or if you've experienced it, or if uh, maybe you had a hand in writing it, because I don't think Jeff wrote all these monsters himself, and there's a lot of names in here, so... Tell us what you think. And we'll head into the Dragon's Horde. The Dragon's Horde. Okay, today on Dragon's Horde, we're going to cover <laughs> one of my favorite <laughs> magic items. The Wand of Polymorphing, or otherwise as I call it, the Wand of Instant Death. Uh, <laughs> wow. And I'll explain why here in just a minute. I'll read the description out of the uh, DMG page 136. The polymorphing wand emits a green beam, a thin ray which darts forth to a maximum distance of 6 inches or 60 feet as you convert it. If this beam touches any creature, it must make a saving throw versus wands, success indicates a miss, or be polymorphed as the spell of the same name, uh, Polymorph Others, and I'll give a reason why this might be instant death. <laughs> the wand wielder may opt to form the victim into a small, into a snail, frog, insect, etc., as long as the result is a small and inoffensive creature. So it's like, I turned me into a newt! So <laughs> yes. there you go. But it didn't get it. better. And <laughs> didn't get better. No. The possessor of the wand may elect to touch a creature. So this has two ways. You can either... You know, shoot the green beam, or you can touch a person with or the a wand. Creature, with the wand, right? When this is done, unwilling creatures must be hit as also and are also entitled to a saving throw. So you have to roll the hit if it's like if you're going to try to smack a orc with this thing. Oh yeah, okay. Right? And they're still entitled to a saving throw versus wand. The recipient is surrounded by dancing motes of sparkling emerald light then transforms into whatever creature shape the wand wielder has stated. This is the same magical effect as Polymorph self-spell. Now, this is, this is a huge difference between the other effect. Either function requires three segments. Each draws one charge. Only one function per round is possible. The wand may be recharged. Now, nope. with all that being said, the first way, when it shoots the beam, obviously this is a, the first way is kind of meant as to be an offensive weapon of some sort. You know, you have you have the big bad red dragon charging at you. Or, you know, I don't know. There's a there's a there's a basilisk, okay? Maybe let's say mm -hmm. a basilisk, because I don't want to mess with magic resistance. I don't think basilisks have that. So basilisk, you shoot it. Now, it must make a saving throw versus wands. Okay. Say if it fails. Okay. Now if you re it functions as the polymorph other spell, which you go to the player's handbook. It's a fourth level magic user spell. Well, what will happen is the creature polymorph must make a system shock roll to see if it survives the change. Uh-huh. So. <laughs> oh, I see what you're saying by insta-death. That's why it's a possible insta-kill. If it fails the system shock, it dies. Good. Okay. 
Now, how do you base that on a monster? You sound unimpressed, Jason. <laughs> well, so, could be I don't know death. You, I guess you would you would base that on the his maybe the hit dice of the creature, what type of system shock roll you would need for it. Um, but also, even if it does make that system shock roll, there's a base 100% chance that the change will also change its personality and mentality of that of the creature, which it now possesses. There's some modifiers for every point of okay. intelligence. It lowers it five, by 5%. Five okay, so, so like a really intelligent creature would have a pretty good chance of not having that happen. Right. right exactly. Can I, can I propose an insta-death that's even more certain? Oh, yes. Using this wand? All oh, right, there. you're fighting the basilisk in a nice, dry dungeon somewhere. You sure. use the wand of polymorph, turn it into a goldfish. There yeah. you go. <laughs> certain death certain death or if you're fighting underwater turn it into something that can't breathe underwater just like a flock. turn it into something that can't breathe wherever you are exactly exactly this is why this is the possible insta kill uh thing but, i just go around turning every monster into a goldfish it'd be great yeah right okay but there's also the possibility when you use the uh the uh, when you use the tap it acts mm-hmm. as polymorph self, which is a little different. Polymorph self, you don't have to worry about a system shock roll. So you could mm-hmm. turn one of your companions into, like, I don't know, a grizzly bear, Grr. for example. There you go. Wait, 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 wait. Now I better go look up this thing. You're saying that it can backfire? No, 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 no. The polymorph, when you use the, the, just when you touch somebody with it, use the, the, the tapping function of the yeah. wand of polymorphing. It functions as the spell polymorph self. Now, there, mm-hmm. and there's no system shock check required. And you can turn it oh, into... Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So a willing person, you could just be like, a bear, bing. Yes. Okay. Form of... Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, you went Form there. of an eagle. You went there. You know, something like that. Shazam. The only thing I have about this, this, uh, this wand is and when it when you use the, 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 when it shoots the green beam out, and it uh-huh. says in the spell description it needs to make a system shock roll, I'm trying to figure out for a monster, what would you use to determine the monster's system shock roll? What would you use, like the base, its constitution, its morale? No, its you just, there's, a, there's just a hit dice uh, it's intelligence? table. No, I mean if it's if it's got stats, sure. But otherwise, you just use your monsters, uh, uh, hit dice tables. Okay, okay. So if it has a hit dice, it's, like, it's gonna have some really terrible system shock roll. Yeah. Okay. But um, but the, the oh wait, the other thing you were saying that the uh, now now I'm getting a little bit confused. So there was the system shock roll, and then there was the uh, the oh there was keeping the personality. That was the other thing, right? Right, right. It, there, when you use the uh, the green beam, the polymorph others spell function. That's where you not only have to make the system shock, but you also have to make a roll versus their intelligence based on some modifiers on the spell description, to where they might take the personality of that creature you polymorph into. Okay. So if you polymorph them into a snail, they might mm-hmm. become. Literally a snail in thought and in body. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. 
But as far as the saving throw goes, I mean, you'll just use your saving throw matrix for monsters for that. Yeah. Yeah, you just use your save versus wands, and if it makes the save, that means it, it dodged it. Yeah. So. Groovy. It's a heck of a good of a good wand. Does it say how many charges this thing can have? Um, standard wand charges, and it can be recharged. Oh boy, this is pretty powerful, actually. Yeah, it is. <laughs> That's I what mean, I mean. The, the possibility of insta kill if it fails a system shock roll. I mean, well, come on. <laughs> forget the system shock. Like I said, goldfish. Yeah, yeah. Turn it oh. into a. I'm yeah. fighting a dragon who's flying in the air. Now I'm fighting a goldfish. <laughs> well, the, there's the but there's a caveat to that. Remember, dragons have are magic, magic resistance. Yes. Oh, so you okay. Get past yes. That. Yes, that's true. But there's the potential. Yes, as long mm-hmm. as you get past the uh, saving throw and the magic resistance. Mm-hmm. Yes. How about a lich? How are the how's their magic resistance? They have magic resistance. Oh, they do. Yeah, they. Yeah. Do. <laughs> All right. Cool. So. Have you uh, used this in a campaign there, uh, Vince or Jason? No. Uh, have, no. No? Never come across this, huh? Oh, as a player, oh. yeah, not as a DM. Oh, okay. As a player, though. Yeah. Oh, okay. So we'll just, I guess we'll throw it out to the people out there to discuss them. Discuss. Yeah, absolutely. Discuss it. Maybe some interesting ways of using it. And, you know, let us know what you think about the wand and polymorphing. Goldfish. <laughs> So, I guess on that note, that's going to wrap up the show this week. Oh, okay. We've traveled down the long highway as a motorcycle goes by my house. Yeah. Thought you were putting in those special effects. No, no, no. (laughs) That was a motorcycle. Anyway, uh, so we'll be back next week with another brand new show. Sweet. So, keepers, don't keep it old school, and good night, everybody. Good night. See you at Gen Con. Roll for initiative.